I am happy this morning to carry forward the conversation about patriarchy, uh, its effects, um, how we perceive it in our midst, what it means to dismantle it and erect something better in its place. So pray with me as I head into the message. Oh, Jesus, we welcome you here. We uh, just feel the goodness, vibrancy that you're bringing to us. We're so grateful <laughs> that you so long ago saw what we'd still be struggling with today. And you gave us tips and tools and instructions and stories to help us understand better what to do. Amen. So what if, as a premise for the morning, we just got rid of money? Right? What if we just got rid of currency, got rid of coins, cash, this whole thing? I feel sort of a rush of, oh, that'd be kind of nice, right? Because money's at the center of so much stress and anxiety, strife, opposition, disparity, inequity. I feel a little bit of it with the proposal that's trying to be enacted to relieve debt, right? My initial response to that, big thumbs up. I have some people close to me who would directly benefit from that. I feel within myself just the, my own yesness to that. I hear the people who are naysayers who'd say, that's not fair. But then I have a little bit of, if I'm honest, sort of this internal capitalist existential angst. Society is so structured on money, built around money, accumulating money, losing money, wealth, debt, borrowing, lending, purchasing, exchange, that if we just got rid of it, I don't know if we would know what to do. Society, structure, how we do human relating would just kind of grind to a halt and there'd be this vacuum and chaos and anarchy and ah. I think that's what Jesus is trying to do in the realm of religion with the structuring principle of sin, sinfulness, and badness. His impulse is just to get rid of it altogether. But he kind of knows that in the setting in which he lives, what would you have left? And it maps in the story that we're going to look on today, and one that we looked on a couple of weeks ago, onto, surprisingly, patriarchy. It's not surprising that those who are dominant in a culture would take the structuring principle of that culture and weaponize it. And I think this is what we see happening in some of these Bible stories with the men who are in power with this central construct of sin, sinfulness, and badness. They take this thing at the center, use it to maintain power, they weaponize it. So we're going to look at a story today that's almost an exact duplicate of one that I talked about a couple of weeks ago from John 8. That story that <laughs> my new favorite Bible translator, J.B. Phillips, called Jesus Deflates the Rigorists. <laughs> The story is usually translated, you know, have it. So the, the elements of that story that will be important to our one today are the men of power in the religious establishment catch a woman caught in the act of adultery. They use their ability to besmirch her with this sexual misbehavior described by their religion. They drag her traumatizingly in front of uh, the public in the temple courtyard. They bring accusations against her ask Jesus to preside in their hastily convened court as judge against her to kill her. Jesus ignores the men, 
brings on them shame and humiliation, sends them away, not having accomplished her goal, and he elevates and exalts the woman who is left standing in the midst of that courtyard in front of everybody as the hero, the one to be emulated, the one on whom to model your life after. Okay, so that's the structure of story number one. We're going to look at a story that maps onto that very similarly because seeing it twice rather than just once tells us that this wasn't just a one-off. This wasn't just an isolated happening. It's a pattern. It's a thing that Jesus is trying to do in the culture that he inhabits. And in this story too, in story number one, the thing happens. We don't get a lot of extra information about what Jesus is really paying attention to as better. In story number two, Jesus will be much more explicit about what he appreciates in the woman who he causes to or helps to stand up against the men and what it is in the men that he sends away. Okay? So this story is from the account of the life of Jesus as told by Luke chapter 7. Now a certain one of the Pharisees requested Jesus to dine with him. And entering the Pharisee's house, Jesus reclined at the table, guest of honor. And look, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And knowing that Jesus is reclining in the home of the Pharisee and bringing an alabaster file of unguent and standing behind, weeping at his feet, she began to make his feet wet with her tears, and she wiped them off with the hair of her head and fervently kissed his feet and anointed them. With unguent. But seeing this, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus talked to himself, <laughs> saying, so he's like muttering to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and of what sort this woman who touches him is, for she is a sinner. And in reply, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, Speak. Teacher. There were two men indebted to a certain moneylender. The one owed 500 days' work and the other 50. As they had nothing with which to repay, the moneylender graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? In reply, Simon said, The one to whom he freely forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your home. You did not give me water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss of friendship, but she, from the time I entered, has not ceased fervently kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with unguent. I want to get me some unguent. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it sounds great. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those reclining at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, 
A place to start in understanding what's going on in this story is to compare it with the first one. So the common elements to the stories, you have a woman who is besmirched by the system, labeled in a pejorative, dismissive way, and specifically around issues of sex and sexuality, sexual behavior. She appears in the court of sort of the glowering men with Jesus there too. Jesus humiliates the men explicitly, exalts the women, and the men are sent packing. Now, you may quibble and you say, well, actually, this woman left. <laughs> but that's only because it's in the Pharisee's home, right? Jesus cannot actually dismiss the Pharisee and the friends because it's in the Pharisee's home. Functionally, they have been humiliated. They have been sent packing. Who they are, what they represent has been dismissed. And this woman is left standing in the midst of it all, celebrated, exalted, and put forward by Jesus. What's interesting when you compare them, though, is the first difference, how they came to be there. Okay? So in the first story, a woman has been caught, apprehended, taken, and forcibly put in sort of the court of public opinion, in the place of accusation. Now, if you understand what's going on, this is the classic example of what we have come to call scapegoating. In a system that's under threat, and Jesus, by definition, brings all systems under threat. So a system has roles and hierarchies, those who have power, those who don't. When that system is called into question, when the establishment, the structure of it is threatened in any way, the reaction of power, one way to maintain the system as it is, is to identify someone who is powerless, to put all your collective threat directed towards that person, all your uneasiness, all your rage, all your anger, we all together directed at that person, we either expel them or kill them. In the first story, the request of the men was, should we stone her? Right? You put it all towards that person, send them packing, and what you've done is you've all together done this common thing that produces unity, and you have all re-upped on structure as it is, on society, on culture as it is. Okay? So what we see in this story is something that's remarkable. This woman has already been cast out in a sense. She has a label that has been affixed on her that causes her to inhabit an unhappy place in this system. What she does is she walks of her own accord into the teeth of the system, into the face of those people who have vilified her, who have already excluded, expelled, pushed her to the margins. She is probably still useful to them, as a sinner, as one of whom, against whom they can collectively direct their own disquiet, their own unease, their own rage, as someone they can use to continue to keep things as they are with the rest of us. But she just walks straight into it. It's, I think, a part of the tension of this story. That this is a common mechanism that culture uses to maintain the status quo scapegoating. But this is a perfect and precise anti-scapegoating story. <laughs> and what's remarkable, too, about the behavior, the behavior of the woman... So this is both a similarity and a difference in the first story. In the first story, the men are ignored. 
right? It's one of the strange things. They come to Jesus with their accusations and Jesus does his doodling in the sand, says hardly a word to them. You feel the tension of it. You feel him saying, the way you do society is nonsense to me. We have no, there just is no meaningful conversation we can have. In the second story, the men are ignored, but it's by somebody else. It's by the woman. Her disengagement with the men is remarkable. You feel in this story like she just sort of apparates into the room. Like Jesus is there reclining at the table, and the next thing you know, he's like, where'd she come from? And she's just exuberant in her expression of something of appreciation towards him. And here's where the story, to me, begins to map on our misconceptions of sin, sinfulness, and badness, and how that is used against this woman. So a similarity in the stories is the subheadings that are typically have been assigned by Bible scholars, men, across time. In both stories, we are told by the subheadings that the thing to focus on is the sinfulness of the woman. In the first one, it's an adulterous woman, blah, blah, blah. In the second one, sinful, 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 a sinful woman, a penitent woman, all these sorts of things. And we think that that explains her gratitude. This is a story I will have made up in my mind across the course of time, that she is a really bad person in the sexual domain of life, and so she carries a lot of guilt and shame, This weighs her down, and in some way she understands that Jesus is going to release her from that. Jesus is going to be kind to her when others haven't been kind. Jesus is going to be nice when others haven't been nice. He's going to let her off the hook, and for that she's super grateful. And so she appears and she weeps and she does these things. I think that's just me imposing this view on her. My first touchstone for this, telling a different story of what's going on with her, is President Obama came and visited Iowa once when he was president. My wife and I had the good fortune to be drivers in one of the cars for, you know, his entourage. And we had both had these kind of fantasies over time, you know, just, oh, if I ever meet Obama... I hope I don't just dissolve in tears. I hope I can hold it together enough to produce words. Because we both just sensed goodness in him, a different approach to politics, to human relating, to values. There was an essential goodness to him that we both felt, especially in the face of what culture had become, of what politics had become, of what it seems to be threatening to become again. And so there was just this overwhelming, you are different, you represent something different, you represent something that triggers in me a flood of tears that I hope I can contain enough to produce sensible words when I encounter you. It certainly wasn't the case that when Obama was coming to town, we were looking for forgiveness from him. Right? We weren't looking at him to pronounce something over us. And I think, truthfully, at the end of the story, Jesus would just say, just go ahead and cry. Right? Don't worry. Crying is the right thing to do. And so with this woman, what if she just detects the reality of Jesus in the face of what her religious culture had become? 
We have no evidence that she had any interaction with him prior to this moment. What if she just gets him? who he is, what he is about, what he wants to do to culture and society. And so, yes, of course, it has produced her as a villain. It has produced heroes in the room. It has produced her as a villain. She has gotten by far the short end of the the cultural religious stick, so to speak. What if she just understands that when he undoes that, when he tears that down when he dismantles that system, it's going to be good news for her because she no longer has to inhabit the role of the villain. And so she comes, you feel the compulsion from her. (laughs) It doesn't feel like she's engaging in an act of protest. She hasn't brought signs or other people with her. She just can't help it. She can't help pouring herself out with tears and hair, and unguent. And so it carries forward then too into the conversation that Jesus brings up about sin, sinfulness, and badness. My sense with Jesus in this story and in so many others is he is engaged with sin, sinfulness, and badness in the same way that I talked about money and capitalism. He's doing everything he can to underdo it, uh, to undo it while still leaving enough left so that you don't have emptiness, a void, complete anarchy. If you pay attention to what Jesus says about sin, sinfulness, and badness, we will still in the end work hard to make it about the woman, that there's something specific to her, she feels really good, she's let off the hook. Jesus is doing something much more nefarious. (laughs) There is nothing in what he says that hangs true in a logical way from beginning to end. Everything throws you off balance, right? So you go to the story. He tells the story of a moneylender, and some people owe him some money. The central act of the moneylender is to forgive all debt. It's just all gone. All the debt is gone. This generates on the response of those who've been forgiven debt love towards the moneylender. When has anybody ever loved a moneylender? Right? It's not an emotion that typically comes to play in that kind of interaction. When Jesus talks about the response of having debt, having been forgiven, this outpouring of love, and the more you've been forgiven, the more you love, and that's the thing that's to be admired, if you're paying attention, it's a little bit odd, right? If I want to be more admired by the end of the day, if I want to be more appreciated by Jesus, what I should have done is sinned a whole lot so I accumulate a huge amount of sin debt and particularly really bad sin debt so that when it's forgiven, I will have a stronger expression of love. I don't think that's what Jesus is actually after. That what we should do is sin a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot so that our expression is better, so that it becomes this whole comparison thing. Again, I think Jesus is deconstructing the whole thing. But even if I wrestle through this, I can still put to the side, sort of put out of my mind, one of the, one of the central components of the story, that to which Jesus actually pays the most attention with words and illumination and putting it front and center in front of everybody, 
And that is just the degree to which this woman lavishly expresses affection for Jesus. It makes me uncomfortable in a whole bunch of different ways. I'm Dutch. I'm male. I've grown up in my particular culture. The expression of affection like this just is uncomfortable. I have a whole lot of thoughts that cause me to question it. You know, well, Jesus, why are you so comfortable with it? You shouldn't, you know, let yourself be the center of attention in that way. That's just not quite right. And so I think at least a key for me into entering into what Jesus seems to really be bringing to your attention and mine is this phrase that he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I think Simon's answer, if you're honest, would be, well, no, I don't. I really don't want to see her. I'm trying not to see her. I'm trying my hardest not to pay attention to what she's doing. These kinds of dinners... They happen often. We're all about prestige. So the Pharisee invites Jesus into his home for dinner. The purpose of that invitation is so that the Pharisee will look better in the eyes of everybody else. When people came, the invited men came to the dinner, they would have seats assigned to them based on their standing in the room. It was very explicit, very understood. You compared yourself to everybody else based on what seat you were seated at. So Jesus is there to serve the prestige of the host. As such, Jesus is just one more object in the room. And this produces comparison and competition and you know, unhappiness and all sorts of rivalry, all sorts of trouble. In a prototypically, not completely, but prototypically male way, male-centric way. What the woman does she actually sees Jesus. She sees him. She sees who he is, what's in him, how he behaves, what it all means. And so her response is just free and easy flowing from that seeing of who Jesus is, what is in him. This is how you would respond if you rightly understood Jesus, if you were unguarded, unfiltered, uncareful. And Jesus then uses how she sees him as a model for Simon. She sees me rightly. You don't. You don't see me at all. You just see me as an object, as a pawn in your world to make yourself better. She sees me. She expresses based on what she sees with tears and affection and touching and anointing. And I want you to see her in the same way that she sees me. I want you to relate to people in this way, where you really see who they are, where you really see what's in them, what they're about. That is the framework for you. Everything else flows from that. It is about who they are and not who you are. And how you express, what you express, flows freely and easily from that. I feel my own limitations with it. I feel like I have so much, so many things that keep me from being comfortable with this. You know, and to this, in this culture, it would have been added, she has been labeled as a sinful woman. For her to touch you is not just uncomfortable, it's contaminating. 
right? Jesus is just trying to undo all of that. And I come face to face with it. And I have a pretty deep awareness that most, that women I know would have more familiarity and comfort and ease with what this woman is doing than I do and that most of the men I know do. More women could easily understand what this woman is doing, what's in her heart, why this is lovely and wonderful and beneficial and helpful for culture and society and religion and just how we all do life together, right? This is a growth area for me, for sure, to both receive it, to do it, to see other people in this way and have a heart response a touch response, a word response that reflects that reality. But Jesus is all over it. He he is remarkable that he knows us, he knew us so well back then. We in the room today have exactly the same problems that these people in this room did back then. And he shows us so clearly how he perceives it and what he would call us into. So that's my invitation to us this morning. My invitation is both just to sit with what's going on in this room and to find your own way into it. I mean, we all would have so many different points of intersection, comfort, discomfort, yes, no, you know. But we'd all find ourselves somewhere. So the band can come forward as we shift um, to the remainder of our service. I'm just going to pray a prayer and invite us all to find ourselves in this room. Jesus, uh, I see you in the room. I see the woman with you there. I see religion, sin, sinfulness, badness. I see the way that our maleness maps onto what's happening there. Help us to find in just this moment our place in the room. If you are ones we would liberate and free up to be expressive in the way we've longed to be expressive, help us into that. If we are ones who'd be uncomfortable with that but yearning, (laughs) help us to find a way into that too, Jesus. We just give you this moment to meet us here in this room. Amen.